Comedy icon Margaret Cho and her podcast from Erios called The Margaret Cho brings you a weekly intimate conversation with an eclectic range of guests from stand-ups to drag queens to rock stars and activists. The conversations are organic, hilarious, and she never shies away from subjects like race, sexuality, or politics. You can listen to The Margaret Cho wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, it is Wednesday, September 9th. This is the podcast version of Q, the CBC radio show. My name is Tom Power. Today on the show, Shania Twain. 25 years ago, she released an album that really uh, was the end of the before and the beginning of the after of her career, if you know what I mean. Like it was the line in the sand of Shania Twain going from being a... Uh, someone who sings on cruises to being the biggest star in the world. And we talk a little bit. I love when, whenever I get to talk to artists about like the defining moment of their life, like from way back then. And we got to reminisce and look back on any man of mine and whose bed of your boots been under. But more importantly, how Shania for the first time ever made decisions for herself and was insistent on having her own voice and her own stories and her own characters be present in her music and not come from somebody else. And the lesson that comes with the fact that that worked out so well. After that, Ian Reid, the novelist from Canada, talks about the very strange process of having your novel adapted by Charlie Kaufman. I would be very worried if I was him about having Charlie Kaufman, of course, made uh, adaptation, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, uh, take over your movie uh, and how Ian watched it, even because he couldn't go to the premiere because of COVID and uh, how his inbox is blowing up and people going, what does the ending mean? Uh, interesting conversation with Ian Reid. After that, Seth, who's... Graphic novel Clyde Fans recently became the first graphic novel in the history of the Giller Prize to make it to the Giller Prize for best fiction in this country. Big deal. So we re-air our interview with him from last March. And then finally, Ashling Chin Yi and Chase Joint tell the story of Billy Tipton, a jazz pianist who um, a secret came out after his death, which shocked the world, but perhaps not for the right reasons. And this film explores a little bit about that. You're going to hear a, a pretty uh, amazing dude, I must say. All right, show starts now. Welcome to the show. Before we get going, I just want to say that, oh, it's, it's, it's Wednesday, and I also want to say how happy um, I am and how, how much my thoughts are with every single teacher and every single student uh, going back to school today. Uh, I hope everything works out. I hope you're able to stay safe. And I come from a family of teachers. My mom was a teacher. Um, my sister is a teacher. Every single one of my cousins are teachers. Uh, my thoughts are with you right now. I hope everything works out and, and good luck going back to school today. All right, let's get going with the show. When you think of your life up until this moment, can you pinpoint an event or a moment that changed everything? Something so important, it sets you on a whole new path. For Shania Twain, that moment was the release of her second album, The Woman in Me. The album featured eight singles, including this one. That album, The Woman in Me, won Shania Twain her first Grammy. It also put her on track to become the best-selling female country artist of all time. And one of the best-selling 
artists of all time. That album turns 25 this year. And to celebrate, Shania is releasing a special edition of it with all these unreleased tracks and live versions of the songs. It's called The Woman in Me Diamond Edition. And here's where it gets interesting. Shania Twain herself joined me over Zoom to tell us more about it. It's so nice to see you. You know, this album is often referred to as your breakthrough album. And in many ways, it really is. I wonder if you could tell me a little bit about who you were right before the record came out and your vision for what you wanted this album to be. Well, when this album came out, The Woman and Me, I was still, I was just coming out of being a uh, small town Canadian artist trying to make it in Nashville and struggling to pay my bills and um, a long way from home and, you know, feeling pretty alone in the world. That's where I was. And did you envision this album as your way out of that? You know, at the time, let's put it this way, I had no idea it was going to be what it became. I would, I certainly hoped that it would be um, successful, but my idea of what I thought that could be was was nowhere near where it ended up. I have to admit that. Um, you know, what I, I I actually remember a conversation with my label head at the time. He said, um, he called me with some great news. He goes, I've got some good news. He said, how much, uh, how many albums do you think this, the record is, has sold? Um, if you were to imagine uh, a number. And I said, well, I don't know. I mean, it would be incredible and, and pretty much a miracle if it sold three million. And he said, "Oh, well, it's way beyond that." Oh so I was just like, "Okay, this is already way beyond anything that I'd anticipated." So I don't know what I what I was hoping for, but it's beyond what I could have hoped for. That's for sure. What What I find interesting about it is that the first record, like the the first record, which you know, I think most people know The Woman and Me as your first record, but there's a record that came before it. And you only wrote one of the songs on, on that record. I mean, The Woman and Me is is almost exclusively your songs, your your songwriting. How much of that, the fact that you wrote these songs, the fact that you were behind the message behind these songs, do you think had to do with the success of the record? Well, I think that a lot of the of what is behind the success of any album is... Uh, being able to be a, being able to be original and unique, and a good way to do that if you're a songwriter is to is to write your own songs, to record your own songs. Um, so I think that just being able to to have that opportunity to self-express, to put pour my attitude and my character into the songwriting, to um, you know, to have a producer that nurtured that edge and that that personality was important. I, I'm happy. I'm happy you said that that character and that like that edge because I was reading reviews of the record when it came out, and one stuck out to me that I loved and said, um, "Just because she had the upper hand didn't mean she couldn't offer." a gentle touch too. And there's a lot of talk about how it's tough and it's funny and powerful, but it's still, you know, vulnerable. Like how much of that was intentional in who you were on this record? It was very important that I, I, I wanted to um, particularly show 
contrast and that a woman can be confident, you know, uh, assured in her opinions, in her point of view, and still be feminine and vulnerable like any human being. I didn't want to portray that, that I was invincible in any way. I'm just human, that I'm a strong woman and a sensitive one. And I think that that hadn't been seen as much in country music before. And I think that that's what a lot of people really took from this record. They really were able to identify with on this record. Do you know what I mean? I do. I do. Because I think um, the fact that the album was, the woman I mean was very, was, you know, for the most part, very upbeat. And um, there were a lot of, I don't know if I can say this here, but, you know, kick-ass attitudes, but, and very straightforward lyrics. But so, you know, in that sense, it was very liberating for a lot of people that maybe were a little more um, insecure about, about expressing their opinions and being a little bit different. And, you know, at the same time, I just think um, as a, as an artist, as a, as a songwriter, as somebody with something to say, we all have something to say, but I think that we, we need others to sometimes open those doors for us and to be vessels for us, to be communicators for us. So um, I think the album did that a lot for people. And uh, and for me too, I mean, it was just, it was liberating for me. I use music as a self-expression platform. So you were you were telling your own story here. You were, you were talking to yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I was just even coming up with these lyrics. I was thinking, should I say that? Is that going to be offensive? And then I, I'm like, don't second guess yourself. Just say what's on your mind. Say it like it is. That going with your impulse is important to the story of this record. And I think especially when it comes to this song right here. Take a listen to this. And if I change my mind a million times, I want to hear him say, Shania, that song still rules, by the way. Any Man of Mine, 25 years on, is still just a banger. It's so good. I, I love it, too. I, I have to say, after all these years, I'm, I really enjoy it on stage. It's, it's punchy. It's, it's totally my, my frame of mind. Here, here's the reason I brought up your instinct in, in talking about that song, because I heard a story that... You know, when you wanted to release that song as the first single, they said no, and they said they wouldn't necessarily, your, your label said no, it wouldn't necessarily work on the radio. It was too powerful or too strong for a woman. It yeah. ended up becoming your first number one. Uh, can you tell me a little bit? Is, is that story right? It's true. I was so excited about that song. I wanted it to be the first single. And everyone said, no, it's too bold. It's too daring. It's going to be too offensive. Um, nobody wants to hear, you know, the men don't want to hear a woman telling them how it's going to be. And then uh, the women don't want to be, um, uh, they don't want to feel, in, uh, they might feel intimidated by your, by your uh, sense of independence. And I'm like, no, this is an all-inclusive uh uh, empowering song for everyone and 
I saw it as a positive message, not a negative one. But so anyway, uh, I was going around to radio playing the music. They were all kind of shocked when they heard any man of mine. First of all, sonically, it's like, whoa, this is very in my face. Um, I loved it. I'm like, yeah, I can feel it. <laughs> we were not always on the same page. Let's put it that way. But it did end up being the second single and still one of my biggest songs. And, and I wonder if that taught you a lesson about trusting yourself or that you might be right and other people might be wrong. You know, you saw some you saw a promise in that song that other people didn't see. And I wonder if that taught you a lesson. I mean, they might have been right about it being the first single. Maybe it would have been too bold for the very first one. We'll never know. But um, Who's Better Be Boots by Nunder was the first single and is also, you know, one of the audience's favorite live songs. So, um, you know, every single on that album had its place and its purpose. And uh, uh, it's just great looking back on it all. Well, I want to, speaking of looking back on it, I, I want to play you one more clip. Take a listen to this. When the nights get too long And I just can't go on the If you're just tuning in, my guest is Shania Twain. Her landmark album, The Woman in Me, turns 25 this year. is being re-released with all sorts of bonus content. And I want to read a quote that you said about this record. Everything written on this album was related to what I was feeling in that moment, in time, in my youth. So we've talked a lot about what this album did for your career, but I wonder what it's like to listen back to, to young Shania there. Very different person. Different in many ways. I have a lot more experience now. I am more uh, comfortable in my own skin. I wouldn't have considered myself even then as a very fragile person. I was pretty, I I wouldn't say that I was necessarily very confident yet, but I was confident in what I thought. And I look back on that person, that age and think, hmm, I was more than ready. I was already 30 when I had my first hit. So even though I was, just getting started as a successful recording artist, I was, I was 30. I, I, I was a woman, you know, cause I had a lot of, uh, I had a lot of living to do before I made it. Um, a lot of, a lot of sacrifice, a lot of hardship, a lot of hard work. And I wasn't a kid. No. I wasn't, uh, I was way ready. I was very ready. I, it is. And listen, I, I want to be sensitive about this and I, and I'm not here to talk about your relationships, but it is, the album was produced by by Mutt Lang, your ex-husband. You know, he up until that point had worked with people like ACDC and, and Def Leppard and Brian Adams, and was a big Slim Whitman country fan, but had kind of kept that kept that yeah. hidden. And when I listen to this record now, your brilliant songwriting and his real trademark production, it's hard not to feel and hear a collaboration between you two. And that's just me. I wonder what it's like for you. To, to listen back to this record as a collaboration with your, well, with your ex, right? Yeah. No, I mean, uh, we were strong um, collaborators. We had, the songwriting came very naturally to us. Not that it was easy to write um, successful music, but 
it was easy to exchange creatively. Um, you know, he's a great musician. He would always come up with these great riffs and then I would get inspired. And then I would, I always had these uh, one-liner lyrics that he would, um, that would make him light up. And then we'd start writing that as a song. So we really played off each other. It was a good um, teamwork environment. And we were, we had a lot of mutual respect as well for each mm -hmm. other's ideas. Mm -hmm. He really nurtured my uh, independent nature and my, uh, and he was, he was humored by my, by my attitude and thought I was quite funny with my, with my directness. Um, and so all of that was captured. He was, as a producer, he captured that in, in, in the records and uh, in the songwriting. So listening back to it, just awesome memories um, making the album. Really, really, really great memories. The personal life and the, uh, the record making was very different. They were two separate parts of us as a team. Interesting enough, yeah. Um, so I'm able to look look back at the music and um, just feel good, really. That's great. You know, it, it would be it would be horrible if you if you if you only heard the hard times. You know, yes. what I mean? you know what I mean. Like if I wasn't able to sing those songs anymore or something like that, you know, it would be difficult. But to be honest, I was really writing when you know that quote that you read earlier. I always write from my own self, and so I'm not emotionally attached to another person or I don't have an emotional dependency on anybody else when it comes to my writing. Maybe that's it. When you say you write from your own self, it's interesting to me because you, you stand on stage and you sing, you know, um, uh, any man of mine, or you sing who, who's better of your boots been under, or you sing like, man, I feel like a woman, or you sing swinging with yeah. my eyes closed or something like that. And there are legions. There are thousands of young women in that audience, specifically young women, or just women in that audience, I should say, who are singing their own song while they're singing your song, if that makes sense to you. Mm -hmm. Does that occur to you? Does that, does that occur to you, like what your music has meant to a generation of women? It really does, because I really believe that once you record a song and you release it, it belongs to everybody else. And it belongs in their life, in their story. It's telling their story. Everybody's been through some sort of heartbreak or some sort of betrayal. And they're, they really embrace looking on the bright side. And that goes for a lot of the music. So it's fun for me and rewarding for me to watch the audience owning the music. So yeah, I see it. I see it every night. You know, um, I mean, I read a lot of things as well, but live shows are really where you see the audience um, express their ownership of the songs. 
You know, uh, we, we, we got to go. So I'll, I'll leave you with this. You know, when I was reading all these old reviews when the first record came out and they weren't all incredibly generous for such a well-loved <laughs> album. And, but, you know, and a lot of them said like, oh, it doesn't sound like country music. It sounds a little too pop. It sounds a little too pop. And Shania, I listen to a lot of country music and I was listening to it going like, no, it doesn't. It's, this sounds like a country music album to me. And then I had this realization that you didn't sound like country music. Country music now sounds like Shania Twain. Do you, do you know what I mean by that? I do. I do. I hear it too. Um, it is definitely, you know, yeah. No, I hear it too. I hear the influence. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I was just making my own music. I don't even know how to describe it. I, you hear it in Taylor Swift. You hear it in Marin Morris. You hear it in everybody. And um, I just want to say everybody here in Canada is so is so proud of you. And uh, con- con- congratulations on this and what a, what a lovely record, what a lovely experience it was to revisit it and spend some time with it again. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I love you, Canada. Ah, uh, man, the key change, Shania Twain and any man of mine. Before that, you heard my conversation with the icon, Shania Twain. Her landmark album, The Woman in Me, turns 25 this year. I definitely recommend take some time and go back and listen to the record top to bottom the way I did. It is so rewarding, especially if country music is your thing, to celebrate. She's releasing The Woman in Me Diamond Edition with all kinds of unreleased tracks and live versions. That'll be out on October 2nd. You're listening to Q. I'm Tom Power. Here are some stories we're following for you today. Better walk the Big changes are rolling out behind the scenes at the Oscars. The Academy says it's creating a task force to promote diversity in filmmaking. The task force is responsible for changing the eligible. Excuse me, eligible. Matt, can I get some help with that word? Eligibility, yeah. The Academy, okay, the task force is responsible for changing the eligibility requirements for the Oscars. I don't know what happened to me there. In other words, they'll make sure that all Oscar nominees meet new standards for diversity. And on top of that, there will be changes in the best picture category. Starting in 2022, the pool of best picture nominees will be permanently set at 10. Normally, it fluctuates between 5 and 10 movies. The new rule allows more options and ideally more diversity. This plan comes after years of criticism about diversity at the Oscars. You might remember that the Oscars So White hashtag trended in 2014, and that movement pushed the Academy to expand its membership. This next step is pushing for further change. Another story we're keeping an eye on is the live-action remake of Disney's Mulan, and it's facing a big backlash. Part of the movie was filmed in China's Xinjiang province. That's where the, that's the region where Uyghur Muslims have been uh, suppressed and held in mass internment camps. Online, the hashtags Boycott Mulan and Ban Mulan are trending. But so far, Disney has not responded to the criticism. Mulan opens in theaters in China starting on September 11th.
Imagine, if you will, you're a Canadian writer and you get the ultimate dream of a phone call that an Oscar-winning screenwriter and director wants to turn your first novel into a movie. But what if that director is, well, you know, known for being a pretty eccentric storyteller? What if he's the great but notoriously a bit out there Charlie Kaufman, the guy behind mind-bending movies like being John Malkovich, The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, Anomalisa? Well, the writer Ian Reid is about to tell you because that's what happened to his debut novel, I'm Thinking of Ending Things. And just to give you an idea of how Ian might be feeling, the last time Charlie Kaufman did this, he took Susan Orlean's nonfiction book, The Orchid Thief, and turned it into this totally fictional film adaptation where Nicolas Cage played a screenwriter named Charlie Kaufman and Charlie's imaginary twin brother Donald. I say this to say when Charlie Kaufman's in charge of a movie, clearly anything can happen, even if it's based on your novel. So you can maybe forgive Ian if he was a little nervous about handing him the keys. But to find out, Ian joins me on the line live from Kingston, Ontario. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm not too bad. Thanks for asking. I got to ask it right off the bat. Are you happy with it? Did you like the adaptation? Yeah, I, I did actually. I, I I really like it. I think um, you know what, what you were just saying in the intro there. Um, you never know. I, I think, especially in, in sort of in any context, when when you're you know adapting, when a book is being adapted to film, they're they're so different. Um, you, you don't you don't really know what to expect. And I think in this case with Charlie, um, that's definitely the case. But uh, I was I was interested to see it, and when I saw it, uh, I, I watched it again immediately, and I'm I'm really happy with it. How, where did you watch it? Like, give me give, paint me a picture of, of you sitting down to watch your film your novel as a film for the first time. <laughs> yeah, I'd actually been I actually been away. I, I was away with someone, and I was kind of hoping that Netflix was going to send me the link to watch it when I had been away. Um, all the the kind of there'd been a plan to have a screening with the cast and crew in, in New York, which got canceled uh, because of COVID. So I'd, I'd kind of been hoping I was going to, was going to get it. I, it didn't arrive then. And when I got back to my place in Kingston, it arrived about two days later, this link. And so I ended up just uh, popping some popcorn and uh, <laughs> lay down on my bed and watched it on my laptop. And it, it felt a little bit um, like the whole process came full circle because this is where I, I wrote most of the book um, was here. So it was, it was kind of nice. And, and I, I finished and, and I, that's, I just sort of immediately watched it again to sort of to, to try and take in a lot more of the details. That's a, that's beautiful. I, I love the idea that, you know, it's not going to be this huge gala with bow ties and all that, but it's going to mm-hmm. be at, at your house eating popcorn, lying on the bed, yeah. watch, watching yeah. your movie. Uh, before you heard from Charlie, you thought your, your book might be unfilmable, right? I did. Yeah. I was, you know, when I was started writing this book, it took me a few years to write it, You know, people might be surprised because it's such a short book, but it did take a few years and it's a, it's a, it's an odd little book. It's, it's very internal, um, uh, you know, kind of literary and philosophical. So I, I was, you know, my, the extent of my ambition was to try and find a publisher, you know, first here in Canada. And I, I guess I, I thought maybe if I could get an American publisher, that would be great. I'd written two books before, but I didn't have an American publisher. So that seemed like a long shot, but I, you know, I wrote it and that we were able to get a publisher here in Canada, Simon and Schuster, you know, offered to publish it. We'd had a few rejections first and, and then we found an American publisher. So that, that for me was that, that for me was sort of my goal. And I did not, I had no, ambition when it came to, 
the cinematic side of things. I, I didn't, I didn't think it was possible or, or likely because it's so internal and strange. And, um, but you know, my agent had started working with a film agent in LA and she started sending it around and, and, uh, things, things started to happen. Yeah, but, but it wasn't the agent, right? Charlie Kaufman found your book on his own, right? That's right. Yeah. I didn't know that Charlie and I had started talking, you know, for a while over the course of a few months, initially he had just been in touch, you know, the, my agent did initially had sent an email saying, could you talk to Charlie Kaufman? And I, and I remember that moment because I looked down, I have one of those little desk calendars and I looked down and, and it was, it was blank. I didn't have one entry the whole week that she had asked if I could speak to him. And I thought, yeah, I can, I can probably make time to <laughs> talk to Charlie. And so, so I did, and it was great. We, you know, we got along, we had a, an hour long discussion only, you know, for about 10 minutes did we talk about my book and then the, the conversation evolved and we talked about books and music that we liked. And I just got a, a sense for him and we, I could tell what he was like. And so we, over the, the next few months, you know, nothing was formal, but we talked a lot. And it wasn't until at some point in that time, you know, several months later that I'd asked him, like, oh, I guess, you know, I guess my agent had sent you the book. And he said, no, no, um, you know, Amazon had recommended it to him no. based on his previous purchases. And he ended up buying it. And so, uh, you know, once I heard that, I, I, I sort of, I, I feel I'm eternally grateful to the algorithm now because that feels very lucky. And not only that it had recommended it to him, but that he actually bought it and then read it. So a lot of a lot of things seem to have to happen that involve luck here. The, the algorithm the algorithm worked in this case. My guest is uh, Ian Reed, uh, the author. We're talking about Charlie Kaufman's adaptation of I'm Thinking of Ending Things, Ian's novel, which is now on Netflix. And it's interesting, you know. I think when sometimes when a film comes out, uh, I've talked to novelists before who have had their films adapted, and they said stuff to me that like they're worried or they're comfortable with the idea of it replacing their novel, you know, replacing their novel in everyone's, everyone's mind is this film. But it's funny, the reviews I've seen online of Charlie's adaptation of your work have said that the book isn't replaced by the movie, but the book becomes a must-read companion to the movie. Like, I've seen a lot of discussion online about what is this movie about, and people say, oh, well, read the book. Uh, how, how do you feel about that? Yeah, I think, you know, the, the, just the fact that there is any kind of reaction, this is surprising to me, as I said, you know, going back to just when I was writing the book and first had the idea of what I wanted to write about, I, I didn't really expect anyone to take notice or really care about it. So the fact that, you know, now that the the, the book has come out and now that the, there's been a film and people are responding to it, and I think the, what you what you want as, as, a, as a writer is there are, are reactions and strong reactions. And so that for me is nice if people feel like the, the two pieces, the, the, the book and the film go together. Um, I, I like that. I, I sort of agree with that. They, 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 of course, are about the same things and the same themes, but they're two standalone pieces. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I can speak more about the film as, as, as being proud of it. And because I'm almost, I feel like I'm a fan as well. And there's so much more collaboration involved in the film with the actors and the cinematographer and everybody involved in it. it I, you know, I'm, I'm just so impressed with. And, and so I do think that they kind of, you know, if you, if you interact with one, uh, the book or the film, it's it's definitely worthwhile. I think going to see what the other one uh, what the other one is. You you mentioned you get, you got to work with the director, of course, Charlie Kaufman. You got to work with the cinematographer, and that means you got to actually step in. And not to be too novelistic here with you, but you got to step inside mm -hmm. being. You, you got to step inside your own novel. 
You know, you're, you're yeah. a producer on the film. You got to step inside. You got to look at the schoolhouse where the show, where, where the, some of the film takes place. I can't imagine what a trip that was for you. It was. And I think, again, because Charlie and I had been talking for a long time before the film went into production and as he was writing it, we developed that sort of relationship of talking on the phone. We would send music back and forth. We would send, you know, ideas for different actors. I, you know, I know Charlie had joked once that we basically had cast all of Hollywood at one point in different roles in this movie. So that was kind of fun. And it was, you know, once it finally did go into production uh, last year, I got to go down and the set and it was fascinating for me it was so different obviously than uh sitting at my desk alone for a couple <laughs> of years writing a novel to, to arrive on the set and see all the people involved and just the different roles and this was my first time ever on a film set before so i was just you know trying to take it in i found that there was this there was this um exhilarating uh aura around it because you know there's you have to get stuff done every day there's a there's a, a schedule you have to keep and my main kind of goal was sort of just to take it in but not get in the way i had these visions of you know being put somewhere in a room and you know stepping backwards by accident unplugging a camera that would they were using to get the most important shot and then everyone was wondering what happened and why did they not get it and so i just wanted to like not get in the way just to, you know be able to remember what was happening and talk to people and and that's sort of what i did it was it was thrilling did you discover anything new about your own story about i'm thinking of ending things through the making of the film version i think so you know i, I saw things differently a, a little bit things that were accentuated i mean when people ask you know what is the story about what's the book about it's a it's a pretty tough question i you know i say it's 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 about a lot of different things it's about how you know we you get into relationships and you end up projecting things onto people. And, and I think that seeing that in a film conveyed by these actors, I think made me think about it slightly differently and just how, how those projections can be repressive sometimes. And, you know, ultimately you always end up becoming yourself, even if you have these, even if you put these projections on people that, that you sort of for a little while end up taking on. So I think just this, that, and, you know, again, the amount of collaboration that goes in, to the film and seeing the, the the costume designer, the art designer, they all bring something to the story um, that now that's in my mind as well whenever I think about it. Just, just in the minute we have left here now, I know ever since I've seen the film, I've been involved in three pretty intense discussions. And I sort of alluded to this earlier about, you know, what does the ending mean? And, and what does this mean? And oh, who, who is this person? And who is that? And I really can't say anything else about the film. because I, If I say one word, I think I'll spoil it. Um, but I wonder how your life has changed since the Netflix version came out. For one, are people writing you and saying, hey, what does this mean? But are you also going checking out online to see the discussion around the film? I mean, it's, yeah, it's been, it's been a little bit different from, from what I'm used to. I have a pretty, you know, quiet existence. And uh, so I'm, it's been really nice to, you know, hear from people. And, and I do know that there has been, you know, lots of discussion going on. I think both for Charlie and myself, that's the, what we would want more than anything is for people to be talking about it and discussing it. And, you know, we would both say that there, there's no wrong way to interpret this movie. Um, that's kind of the whole point. And, 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 and I, so to me, that's, I think nothing is more exciting than the idea that people are discussing and debating and, and maybe even, you know, wanting to go watch again, because I do think like the book, if you read it a second time or the film, if you watch it a second time, you'll have a, a different experience. And I think that that is also, again, a, sort of an exciting idea to me if people are going to do that. And of course, I really appreciate it. Anybody who takes the time to read it or watch it. Um, I'm grateful for that because I, you know, didn't anticipate that. So. 
Well, I'll, I'll, in about a half hour's time, I'll call you again off air and I'll just grill you with questions <laughs> I have about it, if that's all right. That would be great. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm happy to do that. Ian, thanks so much for your time and congratulations. Thanks a lot for having me. Ian Reed's debut novel is called I'm Thinking of Ending Things. It's out in paperback now. You can also find Charlie Kaufman's film adaptation of the book also out now on Netflix and just watch it after the kids go to bed. Sound off by Critical Frequency, hosted by longtime music journalist Katie Henriksen, brings you in-depth interviews with musicians whose work defies categorization. Katie has licensed full songs from her guests, so listening to the show feels like listening to great music with the backstory woven in between songs. You can listen to Sound Off wherever you get your podcasts. David Tennant does a podcast with from something else, is back for another season. David sits down virtually with the biggest names in entertainment, including Dame Judi Dench, Jim Parsons, Elizabeth Moss, and more. You'll get an inside look at these stars' lives with revealing conversations, surprising stories, and of course, lots of laughs. New episodes of David Tennant Does a Podcast With, available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. You know when you're walking or biking or driving around and you pass something that strikes you as strange or intriguing, maybe a weird building that looks kind of haunted or an old cryptic sign, and you want to know what the deal is with that thing, so you Google it or maybe you ask somebody? Seth is the kind of guy who just makes up the answer himself. Seth is a Canadian cartoonist. He was drawing in-depth narrative cartoons long before there were graphic novels. About 30 years ago, check this out, he used to pass this storefront in Toronto every day that said Clyde Fans. And when he finally peeked in the window, he saw these portraits of two men in their 50s. That's all he knew. That's all he had access to, right? So he went home and started inventing their story. In Seth's imagination, they were brothers, Abe and Simon, who owned a struggling electric fan business in the age of air conditioning. And that became his graphic novel, Clyde Fans. And this week, it made the long list for the Scotiabank Giller Prize. That's the annual award for best Canadian fiction, making it the first time a graphic novel has ever been nominated. So let's hear more about that book. Here's part of my conversation from May last year with Seth. I'm definitely interested in older people uh, because of um, my upbringing, I think. I have brothers and sisters, although they were much older than me. And they'd all pretty much moved out by the time I was born. So the parents I grew up with were much older than me. Always, always ideal. It was. Yeah, for your parents you know, to be older it's than true. you. Yeah. I mean, it's like other people. My parents were their grandparents. Ah, so, yes, I understand. So they were talking to me a lot about the, the 30s, even, even the 20s, the 20s, 30s, and the 40s. Mm. And I do believe like the, house, the houses we lived in were filled with like the leftover remnants of like their lives and the children that came before me. And uh, somehow or other, I think that just sort of sept into, sept? seeped <laughs> into my consciousness. So by, I, in my 20s, you know, I wasn't like setting out to be like, you know, Mr. Old Timey. It just sort of crept up on me. At some point, I realized I felt a real affinity for that time period they were from, all the stories they told me. Um, and I made a conscious effort towards it too. But when I started writing about people, I think I felt naturally I was already writing about people looking back. 
I just absorbed. They were giant figures to me, those, my mother and my father. And everything I write somehow is about them. That just seems like a natural starting point for a story to me. If you ask me, like, what is a story about? There would be two things I would say. First, um, what are they looking back at? And two, what do they collect? Those are, <laughs> that's the two points. Speaking of looking back, when did you start to call yourself Seb? I think it was probably in my early 20s, probably when I was like 22 or something. It was certainly not about like uh, what we've been talking about, like the old fogey sort of thing. Um, it was much more in the, the short period of my life when I was actually in league with what was going on at the time, in step. Because mm-hmm. It was 1931. Was... <laughs> you were riding a Zeppelin. <laughs> yeah. Right. No, I the was actually... Kaiser showed yep. up. Yeah. <laughs> it was the one period where I was actually young and I was like a punk rocker and I was like looking for a scary pseudonym for myself mm-hmm. and uh, I played around with a few, which I would never tell. Uh, really? Oh, God. Can't give me yeah. one? No, I think a couple of my friends know, and I've sworn them to secrecy, like with, you know, on, on fate of death. Uh. They were so pretentious. But Seth, you know, it was like, it could have been worse. It's a real name. It's like I could have picked something truly, like, you know, a completely punky, over-the-top name. It's just a name. I regret it now. I wouldn't pick a one-name name. Every once in a while, that strikes me, and I think like, oh, God, I've got one of those names. Mm-hmm. But... I am grateful that when I meet normal people and I, they say, hi, I'm, I'm Tom, and I say, hi, I'm Seth, it's like it does just sound like a name. Mm-hmm. It's not like, hi, I'm Monster Zero. Mm-hmm. You know, that would be an embarrassment. But do people ever go, what's your surname, Seth? And then I, I tell them. Right. Yeah, right. unless it's like, you know, like here where I don't officially have a surname, but mm-hmm. I, I'm not hiding my real name anymore. Your, your real name is? Gallant. Gallant? Yes. Not Gallant. Uh, well, that's a good point. I say Gallant, but I do know... There's like at least three pronunciations for it because we're from the island. And on the island, a lot of people say Gallant. Prince Edward, Prince Edward Island. It's yeah. A, it's a Gallanty yes. place. Yeah. But Gallant is so much more of your bag. Well, as, at one point, I, I think I even had another pronunciation, but I think I've forgotten it. I'd have to work it out. But it's a good name. My name is Gregory Gallant. That is a pretty good name. Not a bad name I should have stuck with that. You know, if you're listening to this and you would like that name. (laughs) It's up for grabs. It's up for grabs just for (laughs) for a small fee. I bet you there's a few on the island with that name. I I bet so. We're going to hear from him right now. (laughs) Yeah. Well, but I hate to ask this, but when you were punk rock, were you wearing the leather jackets and the mohawks and the – Total proto-goth. You know, I went through the whole thing of like, uh, you know, when I was quite young, it was kind of a Billy Idol-ish phase. And then later there was a much crazier gothy period. And it was Mm -hmm. an interesting period to be young. Um, I want to get your thoughts before we let you go on, on, on kind of your industry. Do you mind the term graphic novel, by the way? I used to hate it. Ed Norton he used to say he was, a, what was it, a subterranean engineer, mm-hmm. something like that for a sewer worker. And yeah. graphic novel has exactly the same quality. It's like I, I always said I'm a cartoonist or a comic book artist. But, um, and I fought it initially. I originally called my books. I'd say they were graphic novellas, which mm-hmm. I thought was kind of like a, a smarmy joke. Mm-hmm. But, um, but ultimately, at some point, you're like, uh, it's over. People know what a graphic novel is. That is a word that means something different to them than a comic book. That's right. When you say I do a comic book, they think, oh, you're drawing Spider-Man or Garfield or Ar- something. Archie or something yeah. like that. Yeah. But if you say I did, just did a graphic novel, then they're like, oh, I know what a graphic novel is. So I've just given up. It's fine. It's a perfectly acceptable term. Okay. I'm, I'm, well, then given that, uh, last yeah. year's Man Booker Prize included a graphic novel for the first mm-hmm. time. The book was Sabrina by Nick Dernasso. What went through your mind when you saw – a graphic novel or a comic yeah. on the one of the most prestigious lists in literature. To be honest, I figured the time had come. 
I was not like, oh, my God. Uh, there's been a long process of inching towards that. A few years ago, I believe, Chris Ware, the graphic novelist, he won the, the Manchester, the Guardian Prize. Um, and 10 years before that, Spiegelman won the Pulitzer. Like you can make this sort of like incremental uh, movement towards it. The thing that most made me happy was is that uh, Nick Dernasso's book was a good book, mm. a really good graphic novel to be there. And it's like it deserved to be on that list. It would be unfortunate if it was something kind of iffy or too comic booky. But I even think about the form of like the long form comic or, or the graphic novel. I mean, it's only relatively recently that these Very. things, right? Yeah, and I was not seeing this coming. I mean, that answer I just gave does not include the 20 years where this wasn't coming. Yeah. Uh, when I started working in um, alternative comics, they were called back then. That's what they call them, right? Alternative yeah. comics. Yeah, which is like such an – it's almost worse than graphic novel. Mm -hmm. But or maybe it's worse. Anyhow – when I started back in the 80s, um, there was only one generation of cartoonists before us who had been using um, the comic book as a serious medium, and that was the underground cartoonists of the 1960s and early 70s, and they were using it quite differently. They were hippie artists, you know, so it was all drugs and sex, and I'm sure most people remember the uh, Fabulous Furry Freak Brothers or maybe Robert Crumb's work. That would be the one I'd be more familiar with, yeah, yeah with yeah. Robert Crumb's work. And that stuff, you know, that was very influential to our generation. But our generation were the ones who said, like, we want to start to use it as a long form to try and tell, like, adult stories. I'm sure that in 1980 that wouldn't have been the exact answer I gave. But mm -hmm. ultimately, the literary form is where it went. And there was a long period where that did not look like it was going anywhere. Mm. In fact, I can remember very clearly in around 1998, 99, uh, it looked like it was done. Um, it, the publishers who were doing... These comics and these graphic novels were going out of business. Um, the sales were terrible. And then I've still never quite understood what happened. Within the next couple of years, there was a turnaround. The graphic novel suddenly got a foothold. And um, things have been much better since then. Uh, well, one of the big themes in Clyde fans is, is aging. It's, it's the passage of time. Um, I'll close off this way then. When, when you picture yourself as maybe uh, aging into your clothes a little bit, yeah. uh, what do you hope that life looks like? Mostly what I'm looking forward to is or hoping for is to grow up – grow up, to grow old. Sure. Yeah. To grow. <laughs> yeah. To grow into like the experience of just being an artist rather than a cartoonist. I'm, now, I'm not denigrating cartooning. I am a cartoonist like to the core. But what I mean is for the medium to just mature as another art form, to not um, feel defined by – the pop culture status of it, to just continue to explore like the experience of being alive as an artist through a form that was once pure pop culture but has slowly morphing into just a regular art form. Seth is a world-renowned Canadian cartoonist and talking about uh, going from something that's a little bit fringe into going into a normal uh, mainstream art form. His latest graphic novel, Clyde Fans, has been long-listed for the Scotiabank Giller Prize the annual award for best Canadian fiction, making it the first graphic novel ever to be longlisted for the Giller. The shortlist that gets revealed next month. The winner is announced November 9th. My name is Tom Power, and take a listen to this.
That's Under a Blanket of Blue from Billy Tipton. And if you were hanging around American jazz clubs in the 40s and 50s, chances are Billy Tipton would have charmed you a time or two. Billy made a name for himself over those decades as a player and later with his own Billy Tipton trio. After Billy's death, a revelation about him got a lot of media attention at the time. The popular biographer Diane Middlebrook even turned Billy's life into a book. And Billy's story has been an inspiration for a lot of trans people ever since. No Ordinary Man is a new movie that uses Billy's legacy as a lens to explore how trans people are seen, heard, and valued on their own terms back then and now. Ashling Chinyi and Chase Joint are the co-directors of the film, and I'm happy to say that they join me now. How are you? Thanks for being here. Thank you, Tom. So nice to see you again. It's nice to see you too. Chase, I'll start with you. What, what made you want to uh, uh, get interested in, in Billy's story? You know, for so long, the details of Billy Tipton's life have been controlled by the mainstream media. And this project was an incredible opportunity to tell the story through a trans lens. Uh, Ashley, how about you? Uh, I mean, I've always been curious about stories about people that haven't had their stories told in the mainstream media either at all or properly. Um, And it was just this curiosity of like, who is this person, uh, this complex person who is a musician, an artist, but also a father and a husband and and a friend to so many people that we just wanted to dig in more and find out more about him. So I can hear the audience screaming at the radio right now saying, what is the story? What are you talking about? Chase, I'm going to give you the uh, unenviable task of taking a minute or here so now and telling us the story of Billy Tipton. Sure. Well, I'll pick up on your beautiful summary, which started the segment, which is to say, you know, Billy Tipton was a trans masculine jazz musician who played Elks clubs in the 40s and 50s in the U.S. He was married a number of times, adopted a number of children. And after he died in 1989, Tipton was outed by the media as having been assigned female at birth. And his story was quickly rewritten as that of a woman passing as a man for a career in music. So, and I should be clear, this is not even something that um, Billy's family was aware of. Correct. Right. So, um, uh, Chase, how big a deal was Billy Tipton as a jazz musician at, at the time? You know, as Stephen Pennington, the musicologist in our film, likes to say, he was a sessional musician. He was playing at after-dinner clubs. He was playing as a part of different bands and trios. He was not the fame-hungry star. He was a gigging, working-class guy. I love the way you put it that, hey, Rotary Clubs needed music, uh, you know, banquet halls needed music, and, and he gave them the music that they needed. Um, so I want to talk about, uh, Chase just brought up an interesting point where he said that I, I want to bring back his story from how the mainstream media owns Billy Tipton's story. And one of the more contentious topics you address in the film is that Billy's decision to, quote, pass as a man was inspired by his ambition to become a jazz musician at a time when women weren't readily accepted into that scene. That became the st- sort of the story of Billy Tipton. Uh, Ashley, how did you feel when you first heard that that theory? Well, I mean, it was... It was it was a curious it was a curious theory. It's like, okay, so there was trying to position what Billy did still under this guise of deception, but that he did it for a noble reason, and that noble reason was because he loved jazz music so much. But then it became quite clear that one, one doesn't change their gender for a job, but also he lived a life for many decades afterwards where he adopted three kids and he lived uh, as a booking agent and he was a scoutmaster and he did all of these other things that had absolutely nothing to do with him, you know, succeeding in the jazz world. 
Uh, Chase, how about you? I mean, it, it, that, that sort of becomes the dominant story when Billy's the subject of you know going on Oprah. His family's going on Oprah. There's sort of hard copy r- reports about him. How did you feel when you heard that side of the story? You know, the presence of Tipton's family on the talk show circuit in the late 80s and early 90s is cookie cutter, right? I think we all, in a generation of those of us in our 30s and 40s, came of age in some ways seeing trans people for the first time on the talk show circuit. And the thing that was exceptional to me and quite extraordinary about the presence of Billy's family was that they were there saying, no, 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 you've got it wrong. He was a husband, he was a father, and they weren't, they were attempting to disrupt the spectacle that was being produced after his outing. So I love the way you tell the story in this in this documentary. If you're listening to this, you might be thinking that it's a, it's a pretty straightforward documentary telling the story, but it's, it's really not. Um, you incorporate trans people who have been inspired by Billy's legacy or people who are learning about uh, Billy's legacy. Ashling, tell me a little bit about how you did that using like a casting call. Yeah. So one of the challenges in in making this film um, that we embraced from the beginning was that there are no no moving images of Billy available. So we knew that we would be contributing the very first moving images into culture and onto into society, the internet, whatever, of, of Billy. So we never wanted to do a straight up um, recreation. Um, we wanted to be able to explore the question of like, what was Billy feeling or thinking or doing at any point in his life through the array of many, many transmasculine experiences and people and actors. And so we did that through um, a casting call that was very clear that we were, this is a documentary, you're coming to participate in this doc to really explore with the filmmakers what it would be like to be Billy or the questions that come up in representation and recognition today um, for someone that we're looking back on, you know, who's no longer here to tell that, to tell his own story. I mean, so, so powerful watching uh, uh, these men act as Billy. It is, you know, and, and there's a certain amount of like, I hope I get the job here too. But Chase, uh, what, what did you feel when you were watching these men act as Billy? You know, one of the most compelling parts of documentary for me as a director is when you lose control of your own story. And there was something really dynamic and incredible in those casting rooms where you watched these dynamic performers interpret Billy in ways that far exceeded our original intentions or integrated their own life experiences in a way that produced a new encounter between us from either side of the camera lens. And those are really, to me, the most the most striking moments in the film. I, I should be clear that the casting call, uh, Billy Tipton was a, a white jazz musician, and the casting call is, is opened up in, in particular to Marquise Filson, who is a, a black man. Uh, Chase, can you tell me a little bit about opening up the casting call to include you know non-white cast members to tell the story of a, of a white man? Yeah, absolutely. So the casting call was explicit that we were asking transmasculine actors to step toward a project, a documentary project about Billy Tipton and transmasculine history. You know, the story of Billy Tipton is a story about working class whiteness. But to to cite Riley Snorton, one of our our, uh, experts and academics in in the film, Tipton's story has always existed right alongside black cultural production and blackness. And what does that mean? And so for us, it's approaching the story intersectionally. To think about this story as a story about gender is to think about a story about gender, race, and class. And how can we always be foregrounding the interactivity of those throughout? Throughout the doc, you flash back to the press coverage of Billy's death in 1989, his subsequent outing as a transmasculine person by the media. I want to play one of those clips right now. So this is from from when the story sort of first broke. Take a listen. 
Billy Tipton. The name might not ring a bell, but Billy's story is one of the most intriguing you'll ever hear. In the 1940s and 50s, Billy Tipton was a well-established jazz musician who played the American nightclub circuit. For a time, Billy Tipton even had a record deal, cutting two albums with his group, the Billy Tipton Trio. But it isn't Billy's musical talent that makes this story unique. Instead, it's the almost inconceivable secret Billy kept for more than 50 years that still has people shaking their heads in disbelief. Billy's ex-wives and children among them. If you're just tuning in, this is Q. I'm Tom Power. I'm speaking with Chase Joint and Ashling Chin Yi, the co-directors of No Ordinary Man, a new film about the life of late transmasculine jazz musician Billy Tipton. Ashling, as a, I guess as a member of the media, um, that that really kind of stuck out to me, that particular clip. In particular, the ominous music being played underneath that very salacious story. Up next, you're going to hear about a secret. Um, well, tell me a little bit about adding that clip to this, to this uh, documentary. Yeah, I mean, it was, again, like in, in the same way that, and as somebody who is non-trans to that, had also grew up in the 80s and 90s and, and having been, you know, having watched those sort of talk show treatment of many different people, but how the talk show circuit was treating trans people and, you know, participating in, you know, absorbing that culture and just realizing you know, well, maybe not just realizing, but like understanding that kind of violence towards a minoritized group was just absolutely horrific. And so placing these different clips in the film, we did so with care because we didn't want to make it, we didn't want to keep propelling that same narrative. And it's like, no, the whole point is to take the story back and put it into the hands of trans trans people to be able to tell their own stories. Um, but yeah, it was very, it, it definitely, you know, held a mirror up to like my own childhood and mm. my own participation in having watched some of those types of talk shows it, after school. Yeah, in, in particular, the focus on, and, and Chase, this stuck out to me, in particular, the focus on the embarrassment of Billy's family, as opposed to the, I guess, the transphobia that um, kept Billy from being able to live the life that he wanted uh, or the live that, the life that he was. Um, can, can you talk to me a little bit about that, about the, you know, who the attention was focused on in the media? Yeah, and again, I'll continue to cite our incredible experts in our film. There's this moment when Stephen Pennington says, you know, the media doesn't have any sympathy for trans people. The media has sympathy for cis people. And so we're going to attach to the story of the wife or the story of the child and not attach to the trans or gender nonconforming subject. You know, one of the things that I think is interesting about the inclusion of that media as a trans person making this project is on one hand, we had to think critically, what does it mean to continue reproducing the violence of these clips by showcasing them in our project? But on the other hand, you know, I think that there's something that goes underattended in conversation, which is trans people were also seeing themselves on TV in these moments. So for all of the hysterical high drama music, there are trans masculine subjects who in the late 80s and early 90s were thinking, oh my goodness, someone like me exists and lived a thriving, successful life with a wife and children or wives and children. And so it really does play a kind of double duty historically. Were you having conversations about cis people watching this documentary, watching this film, and maybe having realizations like Ashling just said about the, about the media that we watched when we were kids? Oh, yeah. We have lots of conversations <laughs> about this. Uh, you know, I, I think we have high expectations of our audience. We're really thrilled to have a film that I think can traffic in more mainstream circumstances and on mainstream platforms. And also we feel that we want to do right by the people most impacted by the story, by trans and gender nonconforming people. 
Chase, do you think that Billy's death, his coverage would have been any different had he died in 2020? You know, I think it's important to recognize that language has changed dramatically over the past few decades. And so the easy way in which we talk about trans masculinity, for example, or transness as an umbrella term is a newer phenomenon. You know, when Billy was outed, the language of transsexuality was most in use, which has a very particular um, historical legacy. And so I think Tipton's story would be understood differently, whether or not the media would manage to treat the story differently, I think is an open question, to be honest. Ashley, last time you were on the show was with Heather Graham. It was actually last year's TIFF, I think, wasn't it? It was, yeah. Um, and it was for your film, The The Rest of Us. And I remember during the conversation, we talked a, a lot about solidarity. We talked a lot about it. It was around when it was around me too, but we talked a lot about solidarity. I'm, I'm wondering if solidarity was on your mind when you were making this film as well. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely this collaboration that Chase and I and Amos Mack, like co-writer, that we kind of created as this like trio of of, of filmmakers um, who wanted to attempt to try to tell Billy's story, you know, both and honor him, his legacy, both historically, but also place it in like uh, in a contemporary in a contemporary um, world, a contemporary setting. It was definitely like you know, I think we all came at approach this that like we really wanted to do right by Billy we really wanted to do right by the people that are in the film and we really wanted to do right by Billy Jr who has been the one who's been defending his father's legacy for decades now and what he you know and that he was doing it on his own and then we were able to kind of open up his eyes to like no there is a community of people who look to your dad as hero so it was very important that we did that we took all of those elements very seriously and very you know in an emotionally you know impactful way as well. I couldn't tell Chase were you in that room when when Billy Jr hears that his father is meaningful to to trans masculine folks? Oh, I was in that room. Yes, I I was very close to that moment literally and figuratively. <laughs> well, tell tell me a little bit about I mean that might be the most impactful, the most emotional moment. You see this man who was brought up on, on, on talk shows talking about his father and a man who was, you know, ridiculed in biographies talking about his father. And he gets to hear for the first time what his father means to people. What did that mean for you to be in the room? Yeah, thanks for that beautiful summary. You know, we often say that the transition story in our film is, is Billy Jr.'s, that for a film about transness, he is the one who really moves from one place to another in the time spent on screen. And so we watch him open to the possibility that perhaps his dad could have been someone who would now be identified as a transmasculine person and that that could be a celebrated, honored, respected form of living. And to be in the room with him was overwhelming and, uh, I really feel so grateful for his vulnerability and generosity with us in those moments in particular. Well, if you couldn't guess um, how I'm going to end this interview, I'm going to do it this way. So at the end of your film, you sit down with uh, everybody involved in the film, all of the actors, um, all, of, all of the researchers, uh, and you say, if you could sit down and, and talk to Billy Tipton, if you could ask him a question, what would you ask him? Ashley, I'm going to go to you first. Give Chase, I'm going to give, give Chase a break here. Ashley, I'm going to go to you first. What would you ask him? That's funny because that was known like on set as like Ashling's favorite question that we got to ask at the end. Um, 
you know, having got to know Billy through, you know, through his work, like um, through his music and through his recordings and, and who he was on stage that, that, that we never got to experience because he was doing these things live in the 40s, you know. Um, I just want to talk to him about like his prep, his like meticulous, you know, practice before he would go on stage, like all of him and his bandmates would wear you know, the matching suits up down to like the cufflinks and like just want to hear about his process about being a performer and being able to like go on stage and like, you know, uh, charm everybody with his wit and with his talent. Chase, how about you? I would say, hey, Billy, do you want to see our movie? <laughs> <laughs> what a, what a postmodern answer that was. um i i can't thank you both enough uh both for chatting with me today and and for talking a little bit uh about billy's story and 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 helping to tell billy's story and thanks so much and congratulations on the film thank you thank you so much tom ashling chin yi and chase joint are the co-directors of the new film no ordinary man That is Billy Tipton with The Man I Love from the Gershwin musical Lady Be Good. Before that, you heard my conversation with Ashling Chin Yi and Chase Joint, who are the co-directors of the new film No Ordinary Man, which is premiering tomorrow at the Toronto International Film Festival. If you're in Toronto, that's happening 8 p.m. at the Tiff Bell Lightbox, but more likely its digital premiere will be this Friday at 6 p.m. at tiff.net. That is it for the show today. Tomorrow on the show, Vigo Mortensen, Gene Smith, Charles Officer, and Motion. See you then. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.